Hey, people. You can go. Go ahead. Run. Where are you going? Good to see you all. Hey, uh, how far would you go? What, what would you do to get a donut? Okay, so my wife and I were recently talking to some of our good friends, and uh, let's say these friends have, um, let's just say, a sweet but, but sometimes feisty five-year-old. All right, so here's the thing about five-year-olds. I have one, so I know. Five-year-olds know exactly what they want. And when they don't get what they want, stuff hits the fan. You see, you could ask Austin's wife. I think he, he, his wife uh, caught a headbutt in the face one time at a store from their daughter. Um, but a, so apparently our friends the other day, their, their little girl, she, she, she didn't get what she wanted, which was a donut. How dare a mother withhold sugary, cakey goodness from a child around nap time, right? That's what, that's what the little girl thought. And so rather than, than the average five-year-old temper tantrum, this is, this is what she decided to do. She decided to up the ante a little bit. And so in the heat of the moment, in the height of her anger and frustration, she clearly did the most rational thing a five-year-old could do. She saw a knife sitting on the kitchen counter. And she reached out and she grabbed that knife and she pointed it at her mom and said, give me that donut. (laughs) Thankfully, cooler heads eventually prevailed. Nobody was shanked and and nobody ate donuts. What was that little girl doing? Right? She She was trying to use her power, however little of it that she had, to get the thing that she wanted, a donut. Now, I would imagine to a certain extent, I think all of us can relate to that little girl because all of us at some point in our lives recognize that we have power to get something that we desire. And all we have to do is use something or someone to get it. But you see, unlike that little girl, most of us use power for more than a sugary donut. See, all sorts of things in our lives give us power, the ability to get what we want. Things like gender. Maybe your gender gives you power. Maybe your race. Maybe your nationality. Your economic status. Maybe it's the position that you hold in the the campus organization that you're a part of. Maybe it's the job that you have or the job that you're going to have after college. Maybe it's your level of education, your physical attributes, your friends. You see, all sorts of things give us power. And some of us have quite a bit of power, right? And some of us, relatively speaking, have very little. But you see, power in and of itself is not the problem. In fact, God created human beings to have power, to rule in righteousness, to steward his creation. And so the problem isn't that humans have power. The problem is how we use the power that we have. You see, we all have a choice. Will we use that power, the power that we have, to serve ourselves? Or will we use that power to serve God, to serve others? See, it's not that difficult to see the obvious ways that using power to satisfy our desires, using power to serve ourselves can lead to problems. And not just problems, oftentimes serious injustices. 
Take, for example, the last several months. Turn on the news, open a web page, scroll through social media, and you're faced with appalling accounts of people, men in particular, like Louis C.K., Matt Lauer, Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nasser. You see, these high-profile men and many more have been accused and in some cases convicted of unwanted advances, sexual harassment, physical and sexual abuse, far worse. In all these cases, these men had tremendous power and they abused that power to serve themselves, to get whatever it was that they wanted. Power isn't the problem. How we use power is. See, I wish I could say that these were new issues. I wish I could say that we, were, we are living in an unprecedented, unprecedented time in history. But I can't. I can't because unfortunately, people using power to serve themselves, well, it's nothing new. We're continuing our series tonight through First and Second Samuel, and, and tonight we're going to see that this problem, in fact, is, is very old. Our, our story, it focuses on two men, two sons of Eli. We were introduced to Eli last week. He's the high priest, the, the chief religious official in Israel at the time. And like Israel, his two sons, they have power because they're priests, religious leaders in Israel. And so as we read this story tonight, I want to wrestle with three questions. How did Eli's sons use their power? How does God respond to that? And what does that mean for us? So first question, how do Eli's sons use their power? Let's pick up the story, 1 Samuel 2, verse 12. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. You see, the author of, of Samuel tells us that Eli has two sons, and he, and he says they're worthless. Pretty strong language, and we'll, we'll eventually see why. And he goes on to say that, that these two sons of Eli, these two priests in Israel, they didn't know the Lord. Now, they're priests, right? They're religious leaders. So, of course, this can't mean that they didn't have intellectual knowledge about who God was, Rather, what the author is telling us is that they didn't know the Lord. They, they didn't know what it means to live lives that acknowledged him. They didn't have any sort of active, ongoing, vibrant, fruitful relationship with God. Continuing on, verse 13 and 14. It gets a little weird. Hang with me. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, a priest servant would come while the meat was boiling, with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Okay, let me, let me help. What's, what, what's going on? So in the Old Testament, priests, priests had particular rights when it came to temple sacrifices. And so to make a long story short, priests and their families, they were entitled to the, to the best cuts of meat from the sacrifice. And so in, in these cases, it was the, the breast meat and the, the right thigh meat. But what Eli's sons are doing is, is they're taking more than the cuts of meat that they're entitled to. You see, they're exploiting the people that they're supposed to be serving. 
and take whatever their servant can spear with a a three-pronged fork. Now, something that's really interesting, in in verse 13, we see a word custom. This is what the custom was. You see, that Hebrew word custom, it comes from the same root word as justice. And so, in other words, the justice of Eli's sons is to steal food from people, offering it as a sacrifice to God. But that's not all. The story continues. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. See, again, the, the, the fat from the animal was... was meant to be a a portion burned on the altar for God. The fat from the animal at the sacrifice was the Lord's portion. But instead, Eli's sons, they insist on taking meat still containing the fat. And if they have to, the author says, they use force. You see, the justice of Eli's sons, it's not only to steal food from people worshiping God, it's, it's to steal from God himself. And so here we have men supposedly in the service of God using their power to satisfy their own desires. That's why the author in the very next verse summarizes and says this, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. The sin was very great in the eyes of the Lord. How these men are acting our living is very bad in God's eyes. And if things aren't bad enough, they get worse. Because a few verses later in verse 22, we see this. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all of Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. You see, Eli's sons, they they use their power to steal from people. They use it to steal from God. And now the author tells us that their sons are using their power to to, to turn the tabernacle, the very earthly dwelling place of God, into a brothel. It's a disturbing image when we think about it. Turning the tabernacle, God's earthly dwelling place, into a brothel. Now, maybe you're sitting there honestly wondering, well, did the women consent? Did the women want to have sex with Eli's sons? Well, the text doesn't tell us. I wonder, though, could these, could these women have said no even if they wanted to? Could they have said no even if they wanted to? Remember, Eli's sons were priests. Men with immense power, immense influence in that day. What would have happened if those women refused? I wonder what sort of repercussions there would have been in their lives, their families' lives. How people in their town might have thought about them. I don't know. I mean, I guess we can't really know. But what we do know is that instead of using their power to serve God... 
Eli's sons use their power to greedily exploit, manipulate, shame, and strong-arm others to gratify their dark and disturbing desires. You see, of all people in Israel, the priests, they were supposed to be the ones set apart for the service of God, for the service of God's people. This justice of Eli's sons, it's not justice at all. It's a horrifying injustice. So how does God respond? Skip ahead a few verses, picking up in, in verse 27. Sorry. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus the Lord has said, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod? It's just a special garment that priests wore. To wear an ephod before me. I gave to the house of your father for all my offering by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, declares the Lord, far be it from me, far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. You see, Hophni and Phinehas, they use their power to serve themselves. And how does God respond to their injustice? What we see in this passage is that he says, I'm never going to be okay with that. You see, God reverses what he had promised to Eli and his family because his family, they no longer honor God. They despise him. And for their abuse of their power, for their injustice, God says as a sign of what all he's saying is going to come to fruition, Hophni and Phinehas are going to die. They're going to die on the same day. So we fast forward in the story. A lot has happened. Fast forward to chapter 4. There's a war going on between Israel and the Philistines, and this is what we read. Verses 10 and 11 of chapter 4. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. There was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God, the ark of God is what symbolized the very presence of God with his people. The ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. God said it was going to happen. Here's the point that I want us to get. God brings justice where there's injustice. You see, Eli and his sons abuse their power to satisfy their own desires, and God could not be any clearer. Injustice will not go unpunished. Injustice will not go unpunished. Why? Because God is a just God. Israel's God is a just king, a God of justice. You see, that word justice, it shows up in the Old Testament over 200 times in its various forms. And its basic meaning is is to treat people equitably, 
And so whether that has to do with punishment or protection or care, when we see justice, God is in the business of treating people fairly. You see, one of the things about the Bible is that the Bible provides the very basis of justice in the world. Now, on that point, I'll admit, sometimes I hear a question. Okay, but, but if that's true, if the Bible provides the basis for justice in the world, well, doesn't the Christian church have a history of supporting injustice? Unfortunately, yes. See, and as Christians, I think we need to own up to this, and I think we need to share our responsibility for it. You see, for many, injustices done and supported by the church in history, they've become a significant reason to reject Christianity. And so people reject Christianity because of the way that, that church leaders, because of the way that people within the church, the way they've acted, whether that's in the past or whether it's now, Maybe, maybe you know some, as, as we're saying, maybe you know somebody that, that wants nothing to do with Christianity for precisely these reasons. Maybe you're here tonight with a friend, and maybe that person's you. So I, I get it. I really do. Christians, both now and in the past, we've made a lot of mistakes. You see, it's not difficult to find concrete well-attested historical events and movements that support this negative reality. The African slave trade is one. See, yes, Christians helped eventually abolish slavery. Yes, Christians helped eventually abolish slavery. But we also can't forget that Christianity was dominant, dominant within the nations that bought and sold slaves during that time. See, as Christians, we have to do, hear me say this, we have to do the hard work of listening carefully, empathizing with, taking these kinds of objections seriously. Seriously. But we also have to be crystal clear, both for ourselves and for others, that nowhere in the Bible does God support injustice of any kind. God is never okay with injustice. He doesn't tolerate it. He abhors it. Injustice is the antithesis of who he is and what he wants and what he does. Deuteronomy 10, 17 18. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. You see, doing justice is one of the main things that God does in the world. He identifies with the powerless. He takes up their cause. And because that's who he is, he calls his people to do the same. Jeremiah 22, verse 3. Thus says the Lord, do justice and righteousness. Deliver from the hand of the oppressor him who has been robbed. And do no wrong or violence to the resident alien, the fatherless, and the widow, nor shed Innocent blood in his place. He said instead, instead of using power for their advantage or, or, or to satisfy some sort of personal desire, God calls his people to use power for justice and righteousness. And so Israel is given a charge to create a culture of doing justice for the marginalized, doing justice for the vulnerable, because it was the way that they could reveal God's glory and God's character in the world. 
And so the point was for other nations to look and to see the justice of Israel's society, to look and see the peace of Israel's society and say, I want that. And not only do I want that, I want that God. That was the point. But what does that mean for us? 2018, what does this mean for us? Question number three. See, most of us probably know We're familiar with the idea that Jesus came to bring forgiveness and grace. But I think less well known is is that that experience of God's grace in our lives, Jesus' grace in our lives should motivate us to use the power that we have and the spheres of influence that we have to seek justice in the world. You see, Genesis 1, 26, 27 teaches us You know this. It teaches us that human beings are made in the image of God. And what that means is that the sacredness of God has, in some sense, in some ways, been imparted to humanity. So that every human life is sacred. Every human being, every human being has dignity. You see, being made in the image of God carries with it the right to not be mistreated and harmed. And so as God's people, we're called to seek justice in the world where injustice occurs. So what does that that mean for you? What what sphere of, of influence do you have? How can you be a part, while you're in college, of fighting injustice in the world? You see, there's so many ways that we can do this. But I want to spend the next little bit highlighting one thing in particular. One way that we can be a part of fighting injustice in the world is by participating with an organization that Veritas has partnered with for years now at Mizzou, IJM. Most of you are probably familiar with IJM, International Justice Mission. They do a lot of things, but but one thing, one of the main things they do is fight against one of the largest injustices in the world. Sex trafficking. You see, whether we realize it or not, sex trafficking is becoming more and more a reality in our culture. It's modern slavery. And for some reason, in large part, it's, frankly, it's being ignored. We don't really seem to care. You see, but for me personally, the more that I've read about sex trafficking, the more stories of survivors I've I've seen and heard, the more that my heart breaks and the more that I can't ignore it anymore. You see, sex trafficking, it's abhorrent. People being forced into becoming a commodity to be used and consumed by, by others for others' pleasure. Sex traffickers, they they gain power over victims. By using all sorts of tactics, psychological manipulation, coercion, threats, kidnapping. Oftentimes these victims, are, they're women and children. Sometimes men, but oftentimes women and children. Women who've experienced physical abuse, looking for refuge. Only to find themselves not safe at all, but instead being trafficked for sex. See, these victims, they're, they're kids. Foster kids. Homeless teens, some of the most vulnerable people in our cities. These people, people made in the image of God, they're beaten 
They're abused. They're raped. They're forced into all sorts of terrible situations. Prostitution, exotic dancing, pornography. You might not know this. I didn't until a few months ago. But the majority of men and women and children used in pornography, likely the victims of abuse and or sex trafficking. So when we watch a video online, when we look at a magazine, when we visit a website, when we go to a club, you're most likely, we're most likely looking at a person that doesn't want to be there. A person that doesn't have a choice. A person that can't escape. Not only that, we're helping perpetuate a horrible atrocity by keeping the demand for these things high. You see, I, I, I used to think that this problem was out there, but it's not. It's happening right here in Columbia, Missouri. Women and kids being forced into slavery. Women and kids being captured, lured into the sex industry. I have two little girls growing up in this town. It's happening all around us. It's devastating. It's not okay. Most of you know that Veritas is a college ministry of the crossing, a church in town. Um, one of the members of our church is, is a survivor of sex trafficking. This past summer, she shared her story. Let's, let's watch this, uh, this video. They have so much control over you to the point where you believe what they say. When somebody's telling you, I'm going to kill you, I'll kill your family, I'll kill your daughter, I mean, why wouldn't you turn around and go back? When it comes to, if you just stay and do this a little bit longer, I won't hurt anybody and I won't hurt you anymore. A little bit longer never comes. Anytime somebody is using you for profit in any kind of sexual adult entertainment establishment, whether it's porn, dancing, private parties, private showings, it's all trafficking. to be a dancer. I was definitely coerced into doing it. You're not a person. You're not treated like a person. You're treated like an animal. You know, it's, there's bouncers there, and to me, they're like farmers, you know, hurdling their cattle, go to stage, go do this, go do that. Less than 1%, I would say, are there by choice. So what you're buying and paying for isn't even real. For a while, I questioned why would God let me go through this? Why is he doing this to me? And I always came back to knowing that even though I didn't understand how God was in my life at the time, that as long as I relied on him, that he was going to be there for me. And I started to get my faith back through this situation and started to take control back and realize that I deserved better. 
So that's when I started to deepen my faith and understand that I could only let him carry me if I was willing to leave. And I remember being locked in the trunk of a car for three days after I was kidnapped and raped and just saying, this is it, I'm done. And then going, no, I have way too much faith and God is with me and I'm getting out of here. I started going to the crossing several years ago and I just felt at home. I felt like when somebody said hello to me, they were genuine. I went on at the crossing after 38 years to get baptized. I'm Robin Fleming and this is Bella Fleming and we're being baptized today. It was invigorating. It just felt like a sense of cleansing came over me. It felt like I like everything I had done and been through. Once I got baptized, it was just completely done. It was like writing the end at the end of a long book and knowing that I never had to look back. I definitely think that the happiness I have now is a gift from God. I think it's when you walk the path you're supposed to walk, the right things will come into place. Sex trafficking is very common. It's happening right here. It's happening right here in Columbia, Missouri. It's happening everywhere. As long as people are treated as commodities, slavery is not gone. You know, if the demand is there, the club is there. There's no way to beat this trafficking circle if we continue to fuel the fire. Some of you in this room know Robin. I know that you do. See, it's happening right here, right here in town. She goes to our church. Modern day slavery. Women and kids suffering at the hands of men, using their power to prey on others to satisfy their twisted desires. How can we fight injustice? Well, one of the ways, like I mentioned earlier, IJM, one of the ways that, that we can seek justice for, for victims of, of sex trafficking is, is by join, literally joining with them in the fight. And so the, the mission of, of IJM's Mizzou's chapter is to advocate, fundraise, pray for justice to come to the victims of, of this terrible crime. We'll give a few more specifics later during the announcements, but, but if IJM is something that you're interested in or or learning more about, stop by the table in the back after Veritas because they love to talk to you. They love for you to join with them and their mission what they're doing in this city. A few weeks ago, I was, I was reading um, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from Birmingham jail. And, and if you haven't read it, you're probably at least familiar with this, this line. It, it sticks out to me every time I read it. He said this, he says, Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice anywhere. See, we all have power to some degree. We all have power to some degree. 
How are you going to use yours? To serve God? To fight against injustice? To serve yourself, your own desires? We all have a choice. We all have a choice. As the music team comes up, just like sex trafficking isn't just an out there problem, I think we'd be remiss if we left here tonight thinking that, that injustice is only an out there problem too. You see, yes, of course, injustice, it's happening out in our world. It's happening in our city. But it's also happening inside of all of our own hearts, all of our own lives, every single day. How we look at people, how we treat people differently than us, our twisted sexual desires, our greed, our jealousy, our pride, our selfishness. See, the list goes on and on for all of us. And regardless of what it is, there's only one solution, one hope for injustice, both in our world, but also in our own lives. That hope is none other than the blood of the just king, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing.